Welcome to Season 10 of the Art of Teaching Podcast. My name's Matthew Green and I'm so glad that you joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the traditional custodians of this land on which I'm recording, and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. It's my pleasure today to introduce you to a conversation that I recently had with Dr. Carl Sibir. He is a researcher, educator, author and speaker in the field of digital dependence, screen time and attention spans. With over 15 years of experience in the creative and educational industries, Carl has researched the ways in which teaching and learning have evolved or struggled at times to adapt to an audience who consumes media in new and exciting ways. As the ability to focus will be the new differentiator for individuals, Carl consults how one can harness the myriad powers of technology while also being sensitive to the many challenges that it presents. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Dr. Carl Sabir, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Where are you phoning in from? Uh, phoning in from uh, Melbourne on a beautiful autumn day. So Lovely. What's it like down in Melbourne? I miss it. Um, I have fond memories of roaming around the University of Melbourne's campus doing my master's. Is it still as beautiful as ever? Having lived in both Sydney and Melbourne, I've got a soft spot for Melbourne and on an autumn day like today, uh, with the leafy trees changing colour, it can't be beat, I think. So you might have warmer days up there, but I love the seasons of Melbourne. So Fantastic. And quite possibly the most important question for our conversation, what's your coffee order and do you have a favourite spot in Melbourne? Surely you must. Well, it's a strong flat white. And I keep saying strong just because I'd rather have a strong coffee than something that just tastes like milk. <laughs> and um, I'm spoiled where I live that there's pretty good cafes in whatever direction I walk in. Yeah, I, one of my favourites is Seven Seeds, which is just right next to um, right next to uh, university. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Graduate School of Education. And I spent way too much time and money uh, in Seven Seeds. But one of the many things I love about Melbourne is that you could take a turn down an alleyway and you're either going to get mugged or have the best coffee of your life. You just, you just don't quite know. Is that still the case? Well, worth a gamble, but usually I get the coffee more than getting mugged. So I'm fortunate where I go. <laughs> That's right. Um, is there a book that you've recently read? Uh, it could be within your sphere of expertise, uh, expertise or more broadly uh, that has caused you to reconsider a few things. Uh, a book that sprung to mind when thinking about this was So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It's a book by John Ronson, and it pretty much addresses how we respond to people's mistakes in the digital era. So it looks at how once upon a time someone would make a mistake and it wouldn't hit the news cycle and perhaps would disappear the next day. But now things have a certain longevity and they get shared. There's a particular story and you can follow up on the New York Times as a snippet of it about Justine Sacco, uh, someone who tweeted something inappropriate in 2015 and then the digital lynch mob that came for her and pretty much upended her life. Wow. Um, 
So the permanence of what we do online, I think it's really well addressed by John Ronson. Fantastic. I'm so glad that there wasn't uh, Instagram and Facebook when I was going through my awkward teenage years, because there are some things that I'm very grateful that have not been documented. Uh, would you agree? With that? Oh, I think whenever I'm around with my schoolmates or people I grew up with and we talk about how we're very fortunate that our teenage years weren't documented the way they are now, because I'm certainly happy those things are just memories and not documented uh, online for others to see. Yeah, absolutely. And Carl, if you could have a dinner party uh, with anybody, um, who would you like to be? The, obviously, your family and friends uh, don't count in the headcount, but is there anyone that you'd just love to sit down with and, and, and have a meal, past or present? Yeah, I often think about this hypothetical, and if I was to go out there, it would be um, David Bowie, Beethoven, and Steve Jobs. But then if I really had control of this situation, although you said to omit family, uh, having my four grandparents, two of who I never met, Wow. Um, and just being able to sit around with all of them. So both my grandfathers uh, passed away in their 50s, so long before I was born. But just to actually get to know them. And then I was uh, not an adult by the time my grandmothers had passed away, really. So to be able to have a have them around the table would be pretty special, I think. And I would forego the other celebrities and uh, titans of history. Amazing. That's really beautiful. And um, sorry to get existential so, uh, so quickly, but... Um... What is it that you're most grateful for from your grandparents um, or your, your grandfathers that you, you didn't get a chance to meet? Well, I think what's then passed down to then my parents is that I had a really fortunate and blessed childhood. You often come across people who have either had trauma or difficulties or things like that. But whenever I reflect on my upbringing and how close I still am with both my parents and my sisters, um, it's just something that I guess you realise that not everyone has so it's something not to take for granted do, do you feel their presence even though you never got to to meet them yeah i do i think we're fortunate in the sense that both mum and dad will often tell us stories they're good record keepers uh my father's kept a journal since he was in his 20s so he can turn to any page from any year and wow. recite memories um and so they've always been good at telling us about the things perhaps we miss from not having them around Amazing. And are you a uh, are you a journaler? Are you someone that that sort of avidly wow. tracks memories? I, I definitely go in phases from just writing bullet points to having handwritten journals. So I've got a shelf where if I open them up, there's enormous gaps in between. But I wish I could be as consistent, as diligent as my dad is with it. Um, but I suppose now with having a camera in my pocket all the time. It's journaling in a sense that I'm documenting a lot of what I do. So it's stored there to look at and something I try and do is print the photos I take each year into a photo book, just so they don't just live on my phone and never get looked at again. Love that. And and the reason why I ask is I'm trying to get a lot better at that. I use an app called Mm. um, Day One. And so what I'm I'm trying to do is, um, I wouldn't say curate, because curate sort of supposes that you are selectively and presenting yourself in a certain way. But I, I try and document like beautiful things, I memories I had with my kids or a meal that I had with my wife or a conversation I had with a loved one or a challenge I had at work. And so I'd. what's really lovely is to actually look back. Um, there's a feature called year to date and you can see what you were thinking at that time uh, yeah. 12 months ago. And um, it's really lovely. And the older that I get, the, the more... Um, the more aware I think I'm getting of of the importance of that because life does seem to move 
quite quickly. Uh, it doesn't seem to be slowed down anytime soon. Absolutely. So we're fortunate that we have all those tools to document these things. I think there's also a beauty in the banal. We talk about it a lot in art, but in life, taking photos of those chance moments or that little flicker of light. Um, even when COVID started to really kick off, I started to consciously take photos of things that seemed really bizarre, became normal quite quickly. So that perhaps one day, if I have children, or to show people that this is what became the new normal yeah. um, overnight yeah. almost. I, I'm very aware of that. And also the fact that my mum, uh, my wonderful mum, uh, just came over from the UK. She she left last week to go back home. And I'm very aware of uh, how old she's getting and also the fact that there is a, a lifetime of memories and stories and um, lessons and regrets and wonder that uh, that I would like to see passed down to the next generation. So I'm very aware of capturing that I don't know if that makes any sense, but I know we're getting very reflective for so early on in our relationship. But uh, would you? There's something in that, isn't there? Just stopping, taking time, recording your of life. Course. What that says about our condition. Yeah, I think people can very quickly deride the fact that we document everything and we take photos of all our food and all of that. But there's also a lot to be plucked out of that. All those joyful moments that generations prior couldn't look back at so I've just got a new nephew on the scene from January and have more photos on my phone than perhaps my grandparents would have of their entire childhood and I don't think it's a bad thing yeah we just paid a hundred dollars for preschool photos and I said to my wife we I think we have about ten thousand on our phone decide the point um Carla did you just want to touch base I'll have a little conversation about your your artwork because um I mean, I was looking at one of your pieces and it says, and excuse me for reading, uh, it says, here's some photos of the dinner that I cooked last night, which I thought was a very uh, interesting observation when we're talking about the importance of documenting. And, and what do you think that says about our about our condition? Uh, what does it say about our relationship with technology? And, uh, yeah, would you mind maybe unpacking the uh, the, the view behind that? I think everyone's relationship with sharing things online can be entirely different. We have social media, which can be that carefully curated catalogue of the perfect life. I have Instagram, which is almost a brochure of the good bits of my life. I'm not putting up on Instagram when I'm stuck in traffic or I'm taking the bins out or things like that. Yeah. I don't suppose that's that different to previous generations uh, prior to technology that look to celebrate the good bits. We just have more tools to do it. So we can certainly point the finger at someone that's taken 17 photos of their brunch while it goes cold. And I can understand why a lot of people do that. You can be locked into a bit of a validation cycle. You want to share things. Sometimes it's out of loneliness that you want people to interact with what you're posting. But other times you just like to document and there's nothing wrong with that. And what's what's your relationship with technology like? (laughs) Well, it's quite mixed. Sometimes I can be my own worst case study. Mm. Um, I found myself lying on the couch with my phone in hand, iPad to the side and the TV on um, whilst <laughs> I'm there writing about distraction. But I think through my research and the more I engage with understanding it, it's about how I've developed different self-regulation strategies, being self-aware of how I use it. But I, like anyone, can fall into a trap of uh, binging on those devices, using them more than I should. And then when I find I'm perhaps using them um, 
over a sensible amount. It's usually when I will put an intervention into perhaps get off it for a while. When I started my PhD, I logged out of Facebook thinking it was counterintuitive to be on Facebook whilst researching distraction. <laughs> um, and then never returned to it. So it's one of those things that I Interesting. found I didn't miss. But also I think Facebook is moving into the background to a certain extent as the masses go elsewhere. There's an analogy, um, I can't claim it as my own, but I can't remember who said it about if you're a young person, you've got a favourite pub and you keep going there and then one Friday night you see your parents in the corner waving and then the next time you see your extended family and colleagues in that pub, you go to a new pub, you find a new location to hang out. And I think Facebook to a certain extent is like that, that the younger generations have perhaps moved to Instagram or then to TikTok and who knows what next as Facebook's got a different population now. Yeah. it's. Have you um, read Stolen Focus? So I, I spoke to my colleagues about this just at the start of term with the irony being that I took that out of the library uh, 12 months ago and it took me 12 months to read and I was reading it in snippets. It sat on my bedside table. I had a few overseas trips. It went in my suitcase and it yeah. just took me so long to read because I just I kept finding other things to do. So, yeah. yes, I have read it. I, I'm exactly the same. And I, as I was, it took me about six months. Um, and yeah. I don't know if that says something about, I mean, ironically, I'm reading a book about distraction, getting distracted. I don't know if mm. that is a, if that says something about our condition or, um, but I, 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 I thoroughly enjoyed it. And is, is there anything that you have put in place as a result of reading that book? Um, anything that you, cause I, um, I haven't found myself before saying absolutely yes as I'm reading a book, but yet being so frustrated at myself for not doing the thing that I know how to do. Uh, is, were you equally mesmerised and frustrated or what was your experience like? Oh, my frustration came perhaps from I wish that was the book I had written because I felt right. like I was right. aware of a lot of the things that were being spoken about. But what I found quite elucidating was talking about the value of play uh, yes, and the freedoms that have been taken away from children just by the way that society now is. Yeah, and when he looked at other cultures in other countries where, and I know we always turn to Finland as the exemplar of education, but when children are given that freedom to play, how that can increase focus and attention, mm. and we might be taking that away from the people we're in charge of teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Um. I found it incredibly, um, in incredibly confronting. Uh, similarly, um, I, I've just finished reading 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman, which is a wonderful mm. book. And he um, uh, very kindly agreed to come on for a discussion. He's a little bit busy at the moment, which I understand yeah. why. Uh, but it was a similar vein in the sense of I thought, I, I actually, like, life is so fleeting and goes so fast and there are so many things I want to do, but I, I don't quite know how to bring my obsession or my dependence on technology um, uh, appropriately into my life because I feel like it's just a waste of time, but it's not going away. And I, how do we like resolve these issues? Because I can spend four, five, six hours looking at my phone and going down this rabbit hole, achieving nothing. But yeah, I don't know. Like what, what are your thoughts on that? How do we begin to even move forward? Because I, I really struggle with that. And I think auditing your own personal use is important to actually determine out of that five or six hours, 
was it all a waste of time or and with someone like you with a project like this and a whole lot of other things on the go whether you're uh, networking and contacting people or, or reading or if things are in bite-sized bits it can all be beneficial it's just we don't see it in the same light that's why the term screen time I think needs a bit of redefining if I I mean I really struggled to just commit to a book but if I had in paper form what I read on a daily basis with articles and online journals and things like that I'd perhaps feel more satisfied if I could see the physical evidence of that but when it's just tabs open in my browser and I'm staring at my laptop there's something perhaps not as satisfying and that comes to a lot of us over romanticizing this bygone era of how we used to consume information so there's a lot of guilt associated with screen time now having said that there is bad screen time as well it's just when the bad outweighs the good it can become problematic yeah and do you agree um that our use of technology is fundamentally rewiring and changing the way that we think because i i found it really difficult just to focus on a just to focus on a passage in a text and obviously Johan Hari in, in Stolen Focus talks about that, how the, the the effects of technology, specifically jumping from one thing to the next, the way that we consume a text is very different in a digital form to a, a written form. Do you think there's something more sinister going on there? Or, or um, wh what are your thoughts? Because yeah, I, I really I struggle use focus. I wouldn't personally use the word sinister, but it is a challenge. There, there's a range of schools of thought, say, of, met with Baroness Susan Greenfield at Oxford, who uh, has written a book about rewiring the teenage brain. I contend more that there's just more things now competing for our attention. So once upon a time, whether it was you or I sitting in a classroom, if I was distracted, it's because I was looking out the window or doodling in the margins of my exercise book. But now you might have something vibrating in your pocket or the device that your school is asking you to use has got notifications pinging in every corner. And so, our cognitive capacity hasn't really changed in the last five to 10,000 years. But what has changed is how thinly that pie is being sliced. So that's the challenge. It's about eliminating all of those distractions. Yeah. For those people that aren't aware, uh, Carl, would you mind um, maybe talking to us about your, uh, your your current work and, of course, your your PhD? And what were some of the – what have been some of the – I know that's a two-part question there. So actually maybe yeah. we'll start with your uh, – your current work and what you're what you're currently focused on well so i've got um a couple of roles one is in the melbourne graduate school of education at melbourne university uh, teaching research research methodology there so it's where students will pick their own research topic uh, to do a deep dive into it for their masters and they'll be launching into school leadership as a course next semester um, my main role is at an independent girls' school down Bayside, where as director of research and practice, it's about one working on teacher development. So that's the practice side of things. But the research side is how can we bridge the gap between schools and academic institutions? Often it's the universities that are creating all this academic content and they're writing the new theories on pedagogical practice. And then there's a gap between what's actually happening in schools. I know from starting my own PhD, it's quite difficult to get into schools to conduct research schools and rightly so are hesitant about submitting their students as guinea pigs to your research so it's connecting those two to have a conversation so that we can both be learning from each other yeah so that answers what I'm currently doing and then what was the second part it was on my well, well I think um, Carla if we could just expand on that um 
a little bit. Like, what do you think are some of those challenges? Because one of the things that really drew me to the University of Melbourne uh, to, to fly down for intensives from Sydney, which was quite expensive, uh, was yeah. the, the um, what I perceived as the closeness between that theory and practice was because I felt like the the work and the research that we're doing in a classroom in, at, at university was really applicable to my work mm. in the classroom. And do you think there's still a lot of work to be done there in terms of bridging that gap or, or, or why is that? I think, I think for anyone embedded in that, they can perhaps experience that, right. uh, that closeness between the academic institution and then going to the schools. But you often find that someone, once they finish their teaching career, if they're not then going to be looking to post-grad qualifications, they might never be reading up on practice again. They might be going off to the odd conference here and there, but once you're in the classroom, and I think about my own teacher training and things like Bloom's Taxonomy, and I'd write these essays and all these things, but then when you're standing in front of a bunch of um, teenagers and you've got to engage them for 45 minutes, <laughs> you're not really thinking about what the latest journal articles are saying about it. So yeah, bridging that gap is an ongoing challenge, but something that Melbourne University is a great proponent of. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Carl, what were what was what was the focus of your PhD, and were there any surprises that you found out as a result of your research? Because that's a big commitment to do a PhD. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of surprises. Uh, one finishing it was a surprise <laughs> because you started and it feels like Everest. Um, I was surprised that I, I got through the statistical side of things, having barely passed Year Twelve maths. Wow. Um, but I needed a tutor for that and they were invaluable. The biggest surprise, I suppose, was I wasn't able to prove my initial hypothesis, which was to determine that technology distraction hinders student learning. Wow. And from it was a mixed methods research study, so both interviews and then collecting quantitative data. And what I was able to determine is that if students have got intrinsic motivation to complete a task, like us as adults, they're able to attenuate those distractions. So it all comes down to the motivation that someone approaches something with. The only difference perhaps between us as developed adults and the teenagers that we're trying to teach is that they don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex. So the things that we should be enjoying the privilege of, the ability to self-regulate and to attenuate those distractions and to be more aware of our behaviours is still developing in teenagers. And that's the challenge. Mm. So how, in your experience, then, Carl, how do we, how do we use technology well? Because, um, like my view is that it should be something that enhances the work, the great work that teachers are already doing in class. I know it's very easy when you've got a class full of kids to use it as a um, bit of free time, uh, to use it as a, as a just give me a break. I need five minutes. But how do we do it in a way that um, that enhances what is already happening in classrooms? Yeah, I think enhancement's a really important word to use as opposed to replacement. Yeah. A lot of the pushback can come from people who rightly think that their jobs are at risk when these devices can perhaps do things that they can't. Yeah. But that would be to misunderstand what the role of a teacher is. Yeah. Having taught through COVID and the 270 plus days of lockdown or whatever it was that Melbourne had was the starkest reminder that you can't replicate what it's like to be in the same physical space with your students. So to use it well is about how to 
introduced, and this is a scoped and sequenced approach, so from the younger years all the way through, so they're developing key digital literacy skills. It's a real mistake or a misinterpretation of the research to think that if you're born after a certain date and you're a digital native, that you have inherent digital skills. So whilst someone might be adept at how to um, create a playlist on Spotify or play Fortnite or things like that, I've had students that might not know how to attach something to an email Mm. or how to export things out of Word or skills that we just think because they're on their devices all the time, they know. But one of the greatest skills that they need to be taught is the ability to focus. Mm. So we can't think that the solution there is just to take all the devices away. I think trying to ignore technologies like standing under Niagara Falls with an umbrella, trying not to get wet. It's all going to be around us. And if you send someone as a graduate out of school into the real world, whether it's tertiary or vocational pathways, without having taught them those skills, then it's been a real misservice. Because there's a whole debate at the moment, I'm speaking from a New South Wales point of view, about if phones should be banned in schools. Mm. Um, would you mind maybe unpacking your views on that? And, and what, I mean, what do we do with that? It's enormously it's a broad challenging problem. one. Yeah. yeah, because I'm, and perhaps it's naive of thinking a trust-based model of teaching people responsible use is the way to go. Yeah. I think the onus on the school to take in all the phones and to monitor all of them. Um, sorry, yeah. I'm just stopping in case my Google is interrupting. That's okay. Um, uh, do you know what that um I, I can ask that question again, but maybe in another way, because I don't think it was a great question. Uh, okay. so what I might do is I'll uh, I'll throw another one at you and edit that. Yeah. And hopefully we can bring that in somehow. That was a terribly worded question. So it's probably no, that's quite all right. Um Carl, I was just wondering, um, what was your experience like at school? And was there a teacher that made a difference in your life? Well, I adored school the whole way through perhaps that's why i ended up back in schools and interestingly ended up teaching at the school i went to as a student which i know some people can frown upon i did go and have real world experience and had worked at other schools before returning oh. um, but i had such a, a love of my time there and i would think perhaps my art teachers and that's due to my passion being in that in that space but also had an english teacher who made me feel just recognised and heard in the class. And that's quite a, a, a special thing to feel when you're a student and you're working your way through things, um, which is I've then tried to adapt into my own teaching strategy that students are all having their own journeys, their own battles and things like that, but just perhaps engaging them for a brief time each day hopefully can make a difference, as cheesy as that might sound. Yeah, interesting. Um, uh, Kyle, I'm going to have to edit this a bit out as well. For some reason, my... Yeah. Zoom is asking me to upgrade, which is ridiculous because I pay per month. So I don't know, I don't know why that's happening. But I'll, uh, okay. I'll, I'll, if we have to, we'll jump back on. Um, it says I've got a timer that's popped up saying I've got nine minutes left. Yeah, it's so it's so bizarre. I just uh, changed it over from my work one and paid for it, but it's anyway. Never mind. Is it my, easy for you to do yeah. that and then get back on, or you think it'll be fine? Um, I think it's probably going to cut us out at. Uh, Hang on a second. Give me a moment. Sorry, mate. My apologies for ruining the flow. No, that's okay. Um, I don't know how actors do it where they have to do 30 takes of something. 
Yeah, I, I just, it's really frustrating because I, um, I don't know why that's not working. Okay, just let me see if it's going to let me. Hang on, mate. The wonders of modern technology. Hang on. Let's see if I can pay it now. I think we'll do a couple of creative edits in this one. That's okay. I remember I did a whole interview once and forgot to hit record. That was fun. <laughs> um, so probably... Did you tell the guest or they had to come back and do it all again? Oh, they were lovely. They were really lovely. It was uh, Vivian Robinson. Okay. Which you don't want to, you don't want to upset her because she means business. <laughs> uh, but she was absolutely lovely. Okay, so I think it should. That should work now, mate. Okay. Okay, give me a minute. That timer should go away. So what there we'll do, is we'll jump back into that. Um, yeah, perfect. Upgraded. So frustrating. All right, mate. So, um, so, um, Carl, your experience at school, you said was a, was a really positive one. Uh, was the teacher that made a difference in your life? Who was that? Or was there just one? Uh, there wasn't just one. I think I was really fortunate to have a raft of fantastic teachers, but you perhaps remember those you had in your senior years. I was lucky to have a, really inspiring year 12 teacher who then I came back to work there uh, as head of art and design and he was still in the department and it was this wow. pretty beautiful working relationship we had uh, after he being someone that perhaps inspired me to pursue those creative goals and then turn it into something where I could teach it. Fantastic and was that uh, tricky to navigate going from student to colleague or what was that experience like? Look I, I thought it would be trickier than it was, but it was right. actually really lovely. I think because they were great teachers that I admired. It's not like I thought I was going to return to the school and I can't bear to see them again yeah, and find yeah. out they were still there. Yeah. Um, so no, people that I had a teacher called Bill Spearings, another one called Lee Jenkinson, and working alongside them after them teaching me was uh, fantastic. That's amazing. I I had the the um immense privilege of interviewing a teacher that made a huge difference in my life, a lady called Mrs. Taylor Jones, and it was in year three. And we were going through a particularly challenging um, uh, family separation at the time. And um, I have no idea what this lady taught me for 12 months, but I just remember how I felt when I went into her room. And being a teacher now who currently teaches year three, I know there's probably some uh, volume and capacity in there, probably a bit of measurement, a couple of informative texts, but I have no idea what she taught me. And I just remember walking into her room and feeling known and valued and seen. And it's yeah. is that similar to you with your teachers? Do you do you Absolutely. remember the lesson or the feeling? Well, I think you could perhaps survey a hundred people and they would be able to tell you about an important teacher, but not many would recall an important lesson. Yeah. It's those relational aspects at school that make it important. It makes you feel uh, safe. It makes you want to get out of bed to turn up the next day. I do remember one lesson to counter argue my own statement where my my art teacher um john taylor in year 11 spoke about uh rothko so mark rothko is just an yeah. artist i couldn't understand i think with my naive art understanding where you and boys i found specifically having taught art for a while are preoccupied with what the value of art is so they're fascinated by the economics of how a painted rectangle 
um, can have any value. And he talked about being in the Tate Modern in London, yes. walking to the room full of Mark Rothko's and sitting down and crying. I thought this guy's a bit over the top about that. And then I found myself in the same room in that London years ago and was just overwhelmed by these paintings I didn't understand as perhaps a 17-year-old. And then you stand in front of them and realise the impact that they had on him made sense. Yeah, it's true. I remember standing in that room uh, in the Tate Modern and seeing Mark Rothko and just going, I just don't, before I went there, I was like, I don't get it. I just yeah. don't get it. And then standing there for what would have been an hour yeah. standing in that room, staring, yeah. getting emotional, could have been the jet lag, uh, but <laughs> it's, it's something, isn't it? And would, would you mind maybe helping me, helping me to understand the role that art has played in your life? I mean, it doesn't seem to be a, a natural leap to go from artist to technology. No. Would you talk to me about that because I can see in the background, a a really wonderful painting that I believe is yours. And it, it seems like it's such a key part of your life, but yet you research digital distraction. Talk to me about that. Yeah, it is. It is definitely a key part. I think from an early age, my, both my sisters and I were all put into piano classes. Right. Uh, so when I was in early primary school and they would practice their scales and I wouldn't because I'd then want to sit and draw. And so I was very fortunate early on that mum and dad realized where perhaps my interests were hopefully one to become talents and put me into art school um, as a co-curricular which I then um, did for a fair while and just developed that passion found it was something I was actually capable at and it's something I've just continued to do sometimes it's just a therapeutic process of painting I often do it outside on a nice day because they're large canvases and oils stink but something I've continued on to the point where with the different experiences I had before I started teaching were in schools that I then thought, well, I can combine the joy of working in schools with my love of art and turn it into um, a job. And that's how I ended up teaching art. So it's a bit of a journey from there to where I am now, but it's still a strong passion of mine. And one of my own best learning moments um, in my later career was doing a residency in Florence. Amazing. And... I had a, a master teacher standing over my shoulder telling me why my painting was crap. And it was really useful right? because I think often you show your loved ones and your friends the work you're producing and things like that, and everyone's going to be complimentary. Um, but to have someone tell me why things perhaps weren't that good was a really important way for me to develop my skill further and to build confidence. It might not be the teaching method that works for everyone, but I think honesty is really important. Mm. It, it seems a, uh, a more traditional approach to mentoring. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give him that. Yeah. Why, was yeah. it, um, why was that particularly important to you, um, having somebody with that brutal honesty? Because uh, isn't is art, um, excuse my ignorance, but relatively subjective as well? It's, it's a really challenging thing, the fact that art is subjective, yet there's um, rules to it and we perhaps can all look at certain paintings and know that they're good without being able to describe why yeah i remember on my first practicum placement when i was training to be a teacher and the head of art at the school i was placed that took me into the room where all the 12 finished works were and asked me to mark them and so in there there were some abstract paint splatters and there was a sculpture and there's some photographic work and they all need to be marked on the same rubric mm. and i then delineate between what my subjective opinion was and how to actually assess them so it, it Marking art is challenging when we all can come and work with a different opinion. 
but I think him just giving me what I would term now as robust feedback mm. was useful because if you surround yourself with people that are just going to shower you in compliments, it's not really going to engender growth. Yeah. One of the most transformative experiences that I've ever had was when um, uh, um, uh, my wife and I went to Paris and we uh, went to uh, Picasso, the Picasso Museum. And I remember standing um, in this building, which was a piece of art in itself yeah. and seeing the um the process in which he went through to develop his artistic understanding and I, and I never I, I just sort of said see in my naivety I just seen these uh these sort of um paintings that he'd done that just looked crazy and it was just all over the place and incredibly terrifying but what I didn't realize is just how skilled he was as a a portrait painter um, and to see the progression, I remember there's this one painting that he he painted of this woman uh, when um, uh, when they just started in a relationship and she was beautiful and desirable. But then he painted mm. one as the relationship began to fall apart and she became uglier and uglier and more hideous. And I thought that was yeah. really interesting. But it was just standing in that museum and seeing these amazing artworks was um, was mesmerizing and. Do you think we can all learn lessons from art, whether we view ourselves as an artist or not? I would like to think so, but then I know if you had a maths teacher on, they would talk about the beauty of numbers, and I never found the beauty of numbers. So I perhaps have a biased opinion. But I know whenever anyone is a tourist and they go to a new city, regardless of what their interests are, most people seem to find themselves in a gallery. So I think regardless of what our academic understanding is of art, it, it can generate responses in all of us. So often I would say to my students when I would show them something like a Jackson Pollock and they would be outraged by it and what it's worth or um, how it was created. But I said, well, you're still getting a reaction from it. So it's doing something to you. And so that's the power of it. Yeah. And and what's the link for you then between art um, and your research? Because it would seem that you would naturally research art theory or move into more of a, like talk to yeah. me process and, and how did you end up being someone who researches technology and digital yeah. so there's probably a distinct moment I can put it down to so I was a boarding master at a school up in Sydney and I was on duty in the evening for prep time which is just supervised homework time for the residential students and a student Tom came up to me and said he needed the definition of a word and I said well just go look it up and he said well I can't because the wi-fi is down and it was just this distinct moment of thinking he'd never once thought that he'd go take the dictionary off the shelf or that's how he would access information. And it started me on this path of wanting to understand more that this generation of students, of learners, uh, consumes and accesses and creates information in a totally different way to any other periods in education. So I want to know more. Interesting. I remember my grandfather, I was born in the UK, and uh, he was an older, uh, he was sort of a very traditional working class man and I remember him being so proud when he had a whole set of Encyclopedia Britannicas um, yep. and he proudly displayed them uh, next to the TV in which he watched snooker on every night and then um, in my first teaching my first year at a university um, I remember having this fierce debate with the librarian about why we shouldn't keep Encyclopedia Britannicas because we were looking at um, freeing up shelf space for more books yep. And it's such an interesting concept, isn't it? That um, the whole idea that the that, that knowledge was once fixed and attributed to essentially someone that can afford to to get an entire set, and it's it's 
I just found that so interesting that um, that now they are. And then I saw on, uh, I think, Facebook Marketplace, I saw a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas for sale. And I thought, wow, 100 bucks. I'm sure my granddad would have uh, viewed them a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think now that's just are good for interior designers who want to fill a nice looking bookshelf and things like that. But you're right, they were a totally undemocratic way of accessing knowledge because it was written yeah. particular perspectives. Like you said, it was fixed. Whereas now it's constantly updating. You can refresh pages on things that an hour ago might have said something differently. But also the voices are many. So once upon a time, it was the province of a few who were forming the opinions for everyone else. But now everyone who's got access to a device can publish their opinion. Now that is also fraught with difficulties because people can put out views and this creates that debate on what is freedom of speech. But it's certainly, I think, in a better place now than it was when it was controlled just by that shelf of Encyclopedia Britannicas. Yeah, I think in some way it's a interesting metaphor for the changing nature of schools as well um because yeah. teachers and i think in many ways were sort of seen as these bastions of knowledge and these holders of truth um but mm. the reality is and i think one of the many things we learned from covid is that google is way smarter than i am um so what's my mm. what's my job now and i think it's become a lot more about that facilitation of inquiry teaching kids how to synthesize information and come up with their own viewpoints. And would you mind maybe speaking a little bit into that about how that role of uh, teachers and schools has changed? Um, I feel like COVID yeah. poured gasoline on that thing, but uh, what's what's been your experience in that? Well, it's interesting in the way that we have access to more information now than we ever have in history. Yes. But information doesn't necessarily mean knowledge. So what we need to do is help people convert all the information they can access with a critical lens into knowledge and understanding or flexible learning. Nicholas Carr, in his book, The Shallows, yes. makes the perfect analogy of once we would scuba dive through the ocean of information. So it would be slow and methodical and deep. And now we jet ski. So we go quick and fast just at surface level. Yes. And so it's about how do we slow that down? How, if I'm asking a student to research Francis artists, they don't just click on the first result on Google, which might be the 16th century geographer. How do they delineate between the two and realize there's more than just perhaps the first page of Google? Mm. Chat GPT thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, look, I, I'm fascinated by it. I. I've um, been looking to AI for a few years now, but it's obviously got a groundswell of momentum now. It's more in the public discourse. There's a lot of fear and hysteria, but also people now understanding what its role actually could be in education and in life. I'm trying to keep up with it because each time I feel like I've read something or delved into a new app or platform, something else comes along. But I think like technology yeah. When I was saying it's impossible to resist that, it's also going to be impossible to resist AI having a role in education as well. Hmm. Yeah. I'd, is this just like any other adoption of a new technology where people, there's the early adopters and there's people that are absolutely freaking out? Or is this something which is going to change the game in your view in terms of education? I think historically, as a species, we have the fear of the unknown. 
Yeah. You can go back to whether it's the fear of the telegram, making people not visit people's houses. Socrates talked about writing things down would engender forgetfulness in young people's minds. We talked about uh, TV, meaning people would stop listening to the wireless and gathering around as a family. Every new technological iteration creates fear because it's the unknown. And I think that's happening to a certain extent with chat GPT and AI more broadly. I think what's different this time is that this is quite a seismic shift that is coming for us if it's not already upon us. And we really need to consider how we assess and measure students and what success is in education, because it's going to be a very different skill set than any generations before them. So in your role um, working with the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, um, how do you begin then to prepare teachers for this world that we can't even comprehend and can't even understand? Uh, because it is a um, it is a completely different world. I think whether it's teachers or someone going to any profession, it's about being adaptable and flexible with how you approach new things. So we can't walk into any workplace and say, well, this is how I've always done it and it's worked for me, so I'll do it just that way. And that can be often the challenge or the barrier in education. Education can be slow to change. But if there's one thing I've learned from the pandemic was when you need to, you can. Mm. People have the capacity. Sometimes they just need that little nudge. So as we venture into this frontier with AI and how it impacts the way we teach and learn, I think we've really got a question is what are we asking our students to uh, retell us? How are we assessing them? Because just regurgitating information no longer is a skill set. Hmm. So how then, I mean, what sort of conversations are you having? Uh, you don't have to go into specific details, but what sort of conversations are you having then as a faculty for the way that um, teacher training needs to change? Because there's got to be some... Uh, fundamental skills that are absolutely non-negotiable but then also a lot of other skills that um that are maybe more um uh, uh, soft skills is the wrong term uh but what are some of those conversations that you're having at a faculty level about how you even begin to do that yeah i don't expect I think the moment, secrets so uh yeah. <laughs> i think at the moment the really important thing is to have all perspectives in the conversation mm. so there are people that are against it and that's totally okay and there's people that are for it. And there's, and there's people in the middle that just don't understand or are content with doing what they're currently doing. But if you can bring all those people together, so you have the devil's advocate saying why it's um, the death of education and learning, and then you have someone showing all the new whiz-bang tools, this conversation starts to happen. So it's not seen as the dark arts and this kind of robot overlord that's going to ruin all our professions. But early days of seeing what its impact will be for teaching and learning but it's I think it's exciting as opposed to worrying do you think that um do you think that we can learn these lessons I know Melbourne um your experience during COVID-19 was um was particularly harsher than than Sydney's I mean you spent a lot of time in lockdown and are you confident that we can learn from these lessons or do you think we're just going to spring back into old habits and, and do what we have always done I think we've learned already. It's whether those lessons can be maintained, the skills that were picked up during that time. I think one of the most important things, like I touched on before, was that appreciation of what it is to be in a school, to have those human interactions, that natural cadence of conversation where you're not interrupted by 
a grid of faces and thumbnails on the screen all trying to speak at the same time being able to read the body language of a student who might have had a rough day the day before and seeing that they might not want to engage with you. So the value of being back in the classroom is something that we've learned. I think also learning that there are a range of tools that have lurked on our devices, perhaps sanctioned by the school that's provided them to the teacher that have been untapped for years. So Zoom has existed for a long time or the different conferencing software or Microsoft Teams or whatever it is but people had never opened them. And now we realize things can be a bit more flexible. It's taken away the tyranny of distance. I was giving a talk in New York last year, so I had to leave um, before the end of term and said to my students, well, I'll be on Teams. The time difference was pretty challenging um, for me to get online at 1 a.m. to teach them. But if I'd said that in 2019 or prior, I said, I'm just going to get online and teach from there, their heads would have exploded and the school management would have thought, well, that's going to work. So I think we've learned that those tools can help us. Um, but also it's created this interesting relationship with technology where some are now embracing all the things they've learned, whilst others it's almost a PTSD response when they hear Zoom fire up and they don't want to ever be online again. So we've just got to manage that everyone's approaching it differently. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And and, and I, um, I actually loved that process of everything being upended. I mean, I know the COVID-19 pandemic was particularly troubling for so many and, and and very tragic but from the point of view of just structures that were previously or that were perceived as immovable moving very quickly or having to move was yeah. um I had a couple of chuckles about that I didn't mind it um it was I never in a million years thought my job uh which at the time was teaching year one uh would go online um and what do you think it says Carlo about um equity and access because i remember working in two different schools and two different mm -hmm. towns in sydney uh one school we just went online straight away there was no problems yeah. and the second school we didn't because students were tethering to their parents phones who were all yeah. essential workers and all went to uh all, all went to work so what are some of those at more that those ethical questions around access to technology and how can we begin to start addressing those it's a really significant challenge i think if anything, in a fortunate sense, the access to being online and to having a device is more affordable. But having said that, it's not affordable for everyone. Or there were people when we went online, they had to squeeze four children around the dining table and then somehow find four devices for them to all to access. Or I had a friend whose mother was teaching in a regional school in Northwest New South Wales. Uh, and her method, when they went into lockdown, she had to photocopy sheets and then run them around to people's houses because they just didn't have the internet connection. So often when we commentate on online learning and things like that through quite a privileged Western lens, there were schools uh, around the world where education just ground to a halt. There were schools where education was delivered through the radio. So although we might be privileged sitting on our nice laptops with excellent connectivity, that's not the case for everyone. Mm. And it's a challenge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Carl, I want to ask you a, a slightly more personal question now, and I'm very conscious of um, of the time. Um, I'm very grateful that you chat to me today. But on a personal level, what's an area in your life that you are currently under investing in? Oh, under investing in that you would like to bring back into the focus. Could it? I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. It could be fitness. It could be art. It yeah. Could be What's an area that you're currently under investing in? 
Oh, probably exercise is something I try and weave, <laughs> which comes in ebbs and flows. I wish I was a morning gymmer, but I just felt much to set that alarm an hour earlier. And then the challenge I find is um, after a long day of work, I come home, if I make the mistake of flopping onto the couch, then getting back off that and dragging myself out to the gym is a challenge. So that, that's something I'm conscious I would like to be dedicating more time to. Often I beat myself up about not reading as many books as perhaps I should if I'm calling myself an academic. Um, but I think when you approach a book like it's a chore, and you're not doing it for enjoyment more out of obligation than you don't have the right mindset. I feel after 13 years at uni, um, sometimes I don't really look at books for recreation. I get through a fair few audio books on long drives and things like that, but yeah, a bit more reading might be nice. Any uh, any recommendations? I'm a big fan of audio books. Trying to think what I've got queued up at the moment. Um, to be honest, after I read that book by John Ronson, so you've been publicly ashamed, I went through most of his books and there's not one of them I haven't enjoyed. So, wow. Interesting. Yeah. I'm just in the process of, um, I say reading, but listening to uh, Daniel Pink's book on regret, which mm -hmm. is particularly interesting. And he is uh, an up-and-coming guest on the podcast, but I feel like I um, should probably do a deep dive in his work first i feel like that would be respectful uh yes but, um i i, I also I, I feel slightly um dishonest saying that i've read a book that i've listened to on audible uh do you feel the same way uh, that's a really interesting way to look at it because because a lot of the books i would cite having read i wouldn't say oh, i listened to this book so i just would see it as consuming it and would still say I've read it. I have tried certain books which just don't work as yes. audio books. It's an autobiography on, not autobiography, just a biography on Winston Churchill. And I got a few chapters in and thought, this is so information dense and I'm driving along down the Hume Highway. And if someone quizzed me on that chapter, nothing went in. Yeah. So you've certainly yeah. got to pick the books. Uh, something I would like to get into more, but I've only read one fiction book since leaving school. And a lot of people are mortified by that and will say, but you haven't read this or here's my, um, but when I do read, it's often non-fiction to find out more things. Yeah. Interesting. I, uh, I'm always uh, up to find out some new book recommendations. So I, I appreciate that. Um, a couple of closing questions, Carl. Uh, let's just say I'm a bright eyed, bushy tail teacher, teaching graduate, ready to step into the classroom. Um, and I want to embed technology in meaningful ways in my classroom what advice would you have for me on that i think don't be sucked into what uh, a fad might be so at the moment it might sound ironic but i'm getting a lot of my ai content uh, content from tiktok so the videos and i didn't think i'd be the target audience for having tiktok on my phone but i do and it sends me down this rabbit hole of seeing all these different things that are developed but I think if you're to implement any tool that you see, you needs to be tried and tested and it needs to have some longevity to it with actual rationale behind why you're implementing it. I think getting students to open their device can't be seen as the babysitter approach. I think just sending them a string of YouTube links is outsourcing your teaching and not doing what you need to do. So being mindful about what your role is as a teacher or perhaps to give them the content to consume. And then so when you're in the shared space together, 
you're doing things that can't be done um mm. often. yeah absolutely and is that what currently has your attention what question are you is keeping you up at night in terms of your work oh we've probably hashed over it already but ai is the thing that's got my attention at the moment because it's something i don't fully understand and that's perhaps how i went down the phd path was having all these opinions and i was talking to people and, and commenting on it but needed to know more so launched down to do a phd now i'm not going to do another phd on ai but i think when i get fixated on something it's about just delving into um finding out what works and what doesn't and gathering as many opinions as possible and that's what i did with my phd research otherwise i would have just written up what my hot take on it was and it would have been pretty limited in its scope but uh, so yeah ai still has my attention for sure interesting and final question uh where can we find out more about you and follow your amazing work sure so you can find me at carlsabir.com and i've got a range of media postings uh articles and my research shared on there and if you even scroll down a bit deeper you can find perhaps some of the artwork you've alluded to on another page fantastic uh dr carl sabir I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me this afternoon or this evening. Sorry. Um, I, I'm really grateful. And um, my hope is that there'll be teachers all over the world that would hear our conversation and get some valuable insights out of it. So thank you for investing into our wonderful profession. I really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.